It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Timothy Smith was always true to his craft. He wasn't afraid to break away from the pack and do his own reporting. He was an objective journalist, but he could also get close. Close enough to understand different perspectives, especially of athletes in brutal sports like pro football and boxing. I'm excited about getting his perspective on three decades of covering sports. Hey, Tim, welcome to the show. I've been thinking about the first time we met, and I had to go to the Wayback Machine, back to the late 80s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, You know, it's so far, so long ago, I can't remember. Because when I came to Cincinnati, I, uh, my, my wife was pregnant with my oldest daughter, uh, and we moved from Atlanta. So we met in those days in the late eighties and then you went on to New York where really you spent the bulk of your career at the New York times and the New York daily news. And as, as we unfold this show, I wanted to, uh, just ask you in general, when you think back of your career, a half, you know, almost a quarter century, uh, in New York, what was it like to be a sports writer in New York city, the media capital of the world? Well, you know, when I left Cincinnati uh, to, to come to New York, I always this is what I always thought, that New York was just, you know, particularly with sports, that it was just this cutthroat, incredible, you know, I, I'm going to I'm just going to get uh, I, I'm going to sink. I thought, you know, I mean, I had so much trepidation and fear coming into that setting. And then, you know, I went to uh, cover the, the New York, the New York Jets. And I had been covering the Cincinnati Bengals and I had been working, you know, uh, my, my competition at the Cincinnati Post was the great Jack Brennan. Right. And so, so Jack and I, and I always, I don't know if you remember the old Wiley Coyote cartoon, but there was the, there was the thing about the, the, the sheepdog would clock in every day and Wiley Coyote would clock in every day and they would spend the whole day like trying to beat the hell out of each other. Oh yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so Jack and I would, you know, would spend the day like just, you know, in the corners, you know, like whispering to people, you know, and then without the internet, you, you would have to wait until the next day and pick up the paper to find out what all the whispering was about. Right. But, right. you know, we clocked in every day. We, did her own thing. And, you know, he beat me, I beat him, you know, say just, just, you know, hand to hand combat every day. And I thought, you know, this is going to be useful when I get to New York, because now I'm competing not only with one person, I'm competing with all these other newspapers and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I was a little nervous coming to New York and coming to that setting. But when I got to the Jets, I found the environment was you know, completely different that there was almost like a, there was like, uh, uh, um, I don't know. There was like this, that all the guys worked together and I'm like, 
what are you doing? They'd be right, like, hey, right. who talked to Eric McMillan? Somebody have any Eric McMillan quotes? I'll, sh- you know, I'll trade you Eric McMillan quotes for, you know, Ken O'Brien quotes, you know, because <laughs> I didn't talk to Ken O'Brien today. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in the room and I'm going like, there are like nine guy reporters in there and they're swapping quotes between yeah, each other. Yeah, what is this, right? Yeah, this I'm is, like, what is this? This is the cutthroat I'm, I'm New, to, New York media, really? Yeah, this is the cutthroat New York media. But somebody explained to me, like, they got sort of, tired of like their bosses, you know, yelling at them every morning going, Hey, why didn't you have this? Or you weren't working hard enough. So they decided to just like, you know, on some of the stories to just like, you know, share information. And I was like, I ain't sharing nothing, man. You know, and I would just like do my own thing, you know? And that's uh, really interesting because like you said, you would think it'd be the opposite, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you would think all these guys would be out there just like trying to beat each other over the heads with whatever they could get. And it was, you know, that was like my first experience of coming into New York. And then once I did that, I was like, you know what, Uh, this is going to be, you know, if you just use your journalistic skills, this is going to be, you know, a pretty decent setup because you have those guys, like you said, you know, they they, they just had that attitude. But yeah, I, I... I learned from that in terms of covering a beat that you got to be your own man and do your own thing. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what I learned too, because when I met you, I was right out of college in the late eighties mm-hmm. and uh, I was Jack Brendan's backup guy on the beat. And yeah. hell, I didn't even think I was allowed to talk to you, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> but what I found though, is that you were a very nice guy and uh, you know, so yeah we, yeah, we got to know each other and, and yeah. uh, became friends, but, but you're right. It was a different type of atmosphere. And I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, it was a small, smaller city, but almost in a weird way, more attention on that one thing then. So yeah. you had it, you yeah. had a morning paper and an afternoon paper, and there weren't a bunch of pro teams right. during football season. It was the Bengals. And so people were into it and, you know, and it was, uh, you know, let's get after it. <laughs> that's prob- But that's, you know, I started thinking about that. That's probably one of the last cities that I could think of other than like, you know, major cities that that had an afternoon, a morning and an afternoon paper. Right. It was such a weird kind of, you know, dynamic that late in the game because most of mostly all the papers had sort of combined and everything. And you also had such a, a team, you know, a very talented team in the mm-hmm. Bengals of those days uh, with a lot of great talkers, a lot of guys who yeah. went on to do media careers, really. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Collinsworth had, is still doing it. Yeah, Chris Collinsworth, uh, Boomer, Boomer Sison, yeah. uh, Solomon Wilcox, yeah. all these guys. And it was yeah. a great locker room. So for a young guy like me to walk in, it was really eye-opening to, to like, this is what the business is like. And then you had yeah. a head coach like Sam Weish. <laughs> and Sam would meet you like three times a day. He didn't care. I mean, he was talking and, you know, training camp, his room was down the hall from me at Wilmington College. You just go down and knock on Sam's door in the evening. And he'd fill your notebook. He'd fill your notebook. It was Every inc- day. Incredible. The- yeah, I was thinking yeah. a lot about Sam when he passed a couple of years ago. You know, such a brilliant offensive mind and just a different character. You know, we've both we covered a lot of coaches in our careers, but covering Sam to me was so unique. What do you recall about covering Sam other than the fact that he liked to talk? I remember one Saturday morning, I, I had two, I had my two daughters and one was like a toddler and the other one was, you know, not too far from a toddler. She might've been three. 
And uh, so I went to the walkthrough because nothing ever happens at a walkthrough. And um, except, so I, <laughs> except on this day, they were playing like uh, Tampa Bay. And uh, I'm trying to remember the defensive end's name. The guy was, the first name was Jim. But anyway, Jim Scout. Uh, yeah. Jim Scout. They yeah. traded him to Tampa Bay. <laughs> so I'm there with my two kids. And I, and I say to Sam, I said, Sam, I got to go in and talk to Jim. Can you, like, watch my kids? <laughs> and Sam, Sam said, no problem. He's like, I got a daughter, no problem. He said, you know, bring him to the office and, you know, sit the little one here in this chair and, you know, put the other one here. And, you know, he said, he said you're not going to be long, so just sit him here. He said, I'll watch him, no problem, right? So I go, and I said, I said, well, I said, I'm going to take the baby. I said, just watch the toddler. I said, I'm going to take the baby with me. So I'm standing there. Jim Scow is like in tears. I'm balancing a baby. I'm trying to take notes. <laughs> you know, he's like crestfallen because, I mean, the Bengals are a good team. Right. And Tampa sucked, and he was getting traded, right? So <laughs> so I'm balancing, you know, the, the child, and I'm, you know, and I'm taking notes, and Jim is just like, like he he must think he's in a Fellini movie because here's a guy talking to him with a baby at like the worst point of his career at this point. And meanwhile, and, Sam is watching your other child. And Sam is on. And I'm thinking, what the heck is Sam doing? So <laughs> I come out of the locker room, and I don't know if you remember like that little trailer thing they had. Oh yeah, a uh, literally a trailer, right? Yeah, it was right. literally a trailer. But there was that long hallway with the coaches' offices and stuff, and Sam had an office. And so I and you know so I leave the locker room. And I see my kid just like running down the hallway and she's just giggling and laughing and everything. And she's just bouncing off the walls and running and, you know, just running through the hallways and everything. And I'm like, what? So I go to Sam and said, Sam, you know, why is this child like so energetic? And he's like, oh, we've just been eating candy. And I was like, <laughs> her mother doesn't give her candy. <laughs> She's on a sugar high, man. <laughs> Sam's like, fed my kid all of this candy to keep her quiet while I'm in the locker room. That was probably the end of Sam's babysitting career. One, one, other, one other thing about Sam was that he was such a complex guy that there were things about him that weren't good, too, in terms of, yeah. I mean, you were at the game in Seattle in 1990, and he, after they lost to the Seahawks, he barred Denise Tom from USA Today from entering yeah. the locker room. Yeah. And, yeah. and, like, what are you doing, dude? I mean, seriously. Yeah, I, and, I, and I didn't understand that, you know, and, and um, because it, it, it didn't really fit into – it didn't really fit into who the man was. I mean, right. he, you know, he would always tell the story about how, you know, he roomed with like one of the first gay players. Uh, what was the guy's name? Jerry Smith or something with mm -hmm. the Washington Tight Redskins. Yeah, yeah. You right. know, he roomed with like one of the first gay players. I mean, he was like su such an open-minded guy that it was hard for me to reconcile a guy who was so innovative and open-minded and progressive in his thinking with being just a caveman and a Neanderthal when it came to this issue, and I remember, <laughs> I remember when you know Denise came back to the press box, and she was saying, "Sam Weish, you know, locked me out of the dressing room," and, and I and I said to her, "I said no. I said it must have been a security guy." And she said, "No, it was Sam himself, because the security guy said that Sam had given the order not to let any women in the locker room." And I was like, no, nah, I couldn't have been Sam. I, I, you know, and I just, I couldn't reconcile. So I called the hotel 
and I got Sam on the phone at the hotel. And, you know, Sam is going through all of this stuff that, you know, we don't conduct business in the nude and the Supreme Court, you know, they're not naked when they render these decisions. And, you know, and I got a responsibility to the wives of these athletes that not to have them being naked in front of other women. And I'm like, where is this coming from? Right. Where, you know? where Sam? I mean, seriously. Yeah. So 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 I said to him, this is the and this is the only time that I have ever done this in, in my entire career. And I said, Sam. You don't want to say this. You don't want to do this. Because I knew that the commissioner was coming into town. I knew Tagliabu was coming into town to to talk about, uh, to, to meet with some business leaders in Seattle like the very next day. Mm-hmm. And I said, Sam, you don't want to do this. He's like, yes, I do. He's like, I want to be on the record. I said, Sam, I said, for the second time, you don't want to do this. And he says, yeah, I do want to do this because it's something that needs to be said. And if I don't say it, you know, that who's going to say it? And I said, okay, you know, it's your funeral. So I wrote the story. And the weird thing was <laughs> the story didn't run in the in Cincinnati Inquirer because it was after deadline. Right. It was so late. Uh, right. When I got the story. Uh, but I gave the quotes to a reporter from the, the uh, LA Times and he, you know, credited me with getting Sam. And which was a weird kind of thing because the story wasn't in the Cincinnati Inquirer. But the very next day, the commissioner came down so hard on Sam, you know, because he, because Sam embarrassed the commissioner, embarrassed the league. And here's the commissioner speaking to business leaders in Seattle. And he's yeah. got this coach that's completely out of step with, with the way things should be done. There's no it was reason. only, and it was only two weeks after Lisa Olson had been harassed in the new England uh, players locker yeah. room. So yeah. I mean, the timing of it. And I still remember Sam, doing his weekly press conference because they stayed in Seattle because they were going to go down to, uh, to LA to play the Rams the next week. So they decided to stay in, in Seattle. And I still remember Sam doing his Wednesday press conference in a loincloth. Oh, at a pool. Jesus. <laughs> at an indoor pool at the hotel. And he's like, yeah, you're going to, you're going to say I'm a caveman. I'm going to dress like a caveman. And I'm like, you know, yeah, I just, well, there was obviously never a dull moment with Sam. Well, Tim, after you left Sam, you, you did go to the New York Times, and, and you started out there, you know, covering the J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. Um, yeah. So your time in the NFL, when you think about it, what did you like about covering the NFL? What- the main thing that I like, and, and to this day, it's still the, the thing that sort of, you know, propels me as a fan of the sport, is I like the players. I mean, I just like Oh, I agree. Yeah, I, I like the players, and I formed my relationship more uh, with the players and their and their uh, you know and their agents in terms of like just players' movement and stuff. And I would always side with the players against the league, but because I worked at the New York Times, they couldn't take an adversary too much of an adversarial relationship with me because they needed the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was always on the player side. Um, I always felt it, like they played such a violent game mm-hmm. that their careers could end at any moment that there was right. almost a humility to them that you wouldn't expect from these big, brawly guys. And yeah. they also, even if they weren't road Scholars, they went to college and were exposed yeah. to other things on a campus. And it just yeah. gave them a different perspective. That's my memory of dealing with NFL players. It, it, gave, it gave them a different perspective. 
And it allowed them to have a level of communication skills that perhaps, you know, some athletes like baseball players, you know, that I, I think baseball players, because of the way that they have to come up, you know, through class A and riding on a bus and, and having sort of that insular lifestyle where they're only dealing with their teammates and everything. Right. And they don't really deal in those in the smaller towns. They're not dealing with a lot of press. You know, that they they really can't maneuver through those kinds of relationships so well. But with football players, I always felt like I could build a relationship with a football player. But my thing about covering the league was I liked the players more than I liked the league itself. And and that's because the league is a corporation. It's a business. And it's, you know, and the commissioner is beholden to the individual owners of the teams and their business conflicts with the workers in so many different ways. You know, I I always thought one of the the biggest oxymorons was a team doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Right. He gets paid by the club, right? (laughs) He gets paid by the club to put you back out when, you know, if you went to your regular physician and you had this injury, your 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 regular primary care doctor would be like, No, go home and rest. You can't no, you're not gonna be running around and getting hit by a two hundred and sixty pound man on Sunday. Oh, I remember yeah. uh, Bruce Kazerski, a lineman, offensive lineman at the Cincinnati Bengals. He once told me, he explained the uh, injury report to me. He said, if it says uh, probable, you're playing. If it says doubtful, you're probable. And if it says out, you're probably going to play. <laughs> he was sort of joking, but not really. Yeah, not, I mean, not really. They're the gladiators, really. right? You know. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, you wrote you wrote about much more than just the NFL in your time in New York. I mean, as a columnist at the New York Daily News, you wrote about everything, the pro teams, uh, NBA, Major League Baseball. There's a baseball story I wanted to ask you about, Tim. Uh, I, I think you once mentioned that you got sent to the Bahamas to write about El Duque. Is that right? Yeah. So I got sent to Miami to cover the Orange Bowl. And uh, I covered the Orange Bowl for one day. That was photo day. And then I got a call that said, I got a call from the editor that said, um, hey, this Cuban baseball player was just rescued from an atoll near the Bahamas. And he's in a Bahamian detention center. Can you get down to the Bahamas <laughs> and, you know, track the story down and find this guy? And I'm like, wait a minute. I don't know anything about the Bahamas. I don't know where the detention center is. He's like, yeah, just, you know, just go down there and, and, and report the story. And I was like, okay. Just another day at the office. Just another day at the office. So I get on a plane and I just happened to be at the airport with the photographer. They sent a photographer along, somebody that spoke Spanish. So they sent me with this photographer. And when I got to the Bahamas, I landed at the airport and there was a reporter from the Miami Herald there that I knew from covering, you know, football, uh, Armando Silguero. Right. He was there. So... He said, well, why don't we just ride together to this detention center? And I was like, okay. And you're looking for Orlando Hernandez, the pitcher. And I'm looking for Orlando Hernandez, El Duque. Right. um, (laughs) Who, who, along with like five other people, gets into this makeshift raft and tries to escape Cuba and ends up, you know, on an atoll outside the Bahamas for like three days. And, you know, uh, so we, so we, we get to the detention center, the taxi, and we tell the taxi, you know, look, there's money in it, but you, you just got to wait for us until we figure out where we have to go from this point. 
And this is like one of those bad movies where as soon as you get out of the taxi, it just speeds off. And so we go up to the to the gate, I mean, to the fence, and we don't see him. So this, this guy comes over and he says, because uh, he saw the photographer with the camera, and he says, uh, are you guys looking for the baseball player? And we're like, yeah. And he says, uh, he's here. And we go, okay, good. Where is he? He says, he's in that building over there. So we go, okay, well, we're just going to stake this place out. So, so they bring, they bring him out of the building and they put him in a van and the van leaves. We're, we're there with no way to follow the, the van or know where it's going. Yeah. Cause the taxi guy bolted. <laughs> the taxi guy bolted. Right. So, so we asked the guy at the fence and he says, well, they're taking him to, you know, the, uh, the government offices, you know, downtown where they're going to try to you know, figure out what to do with him and process him. So we were like, okay, now we know where he went. Now, how do we get there? So this old woman drives by. So we flag her down and we go, ma'am, if you don't mind, because this place is in the middle of nowhere, ma'am, if you don't mind, can you take us to this uh, government center downtown? And she's like, well, you know, I came out here to visit my son, but she's like, you know, I, I think that God put me here to do you guys a favor. So yeah, I'll take you. So we were like, thank God. Yeah. An angel. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Right. So she takes this and she, and she has on the backseat of the car, she has like dozens of eggs. I don't know how many eggs there were, but they were stacked in these little crates and everything. And she's like, just put the eggs in there. Be careful. Put the eggs in the trunk. I don't need any of them broken. And, you know, so we carefully put the eggs in the trunk. And the photographer is like, well, ma'am, I, you know, I got all this gear. You mind if I put my gear in the trunk, you know, but I'll make sure that the eggs are broken. She's like, yeah, no problem. So the photographer puts all of his gear in the trunk. We pile into the car. So she takes us to the center. So she, she drops us off and she points out where, you know, the center is. The photographer <laughs> reaches into the trunk to get his equipment. Every single egg is busted. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, scrambled. <laughs> Scramble. Every egg in the trunk is scrambled. So we're like, oh, gee, we just ruined this woman's. So, <laughs> so, so we're like, we can't, you know, the woman's like, she won't, she won't take any money because she says God sent her to help us out. So we throw like 50 bucks in the trunk with a busted egg so she can, you know, so she won't curse us out whenever she gets where she's going with these eggs. By the way, how did you put that on your expense account? Uh, yeah, $50 for busted eggs. Is, oh, okay. Uh, you, you don't expense that. You just, you know, you leave that alone. I thought that was a dinner. Sorry. So did you get to talk to, talk to Hernandez at some point? So we go in and it's like him and like four other people. And, you know, they start telling the story, but they, they're telling the story in Spanish. And I don't understand the word of Spanish. So the photographer is standing next to me. And he's telling, he's translating. And he's, I mean, so he's got, he's got egg all over his equipment and he's yeah, translating. And he's translating. And it's very emotional. El Duque is crying and talking about, you know, how God saved them. And, if, if, you know, if the ship hadn't come by, they had run out of food. You know, there was no fresh water and they were catching rainwater and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, this is a great story. I wish I could, you know, I wish I could hear it in the original language, you know to try to capture some of this. So I captured the emotion, but I, you know, the language. So when we're, when we're there, this guy, this baseball agent shows up 
And, you know, we see him like passing out uh, money to some of the officials. And so we go, okay, this is, this isn't going to take long. This guy's going to be free pretty soon, you know, but we don't know where he's going to go. And so the agent is like, well, uh, he can't come to America because if he comes to America, then his baseball rights become open to everybody. Mm-hmm. He said, but if he goes to Costa Rica, he can just make a deal directly with the Yankees, which is what <laughs> So the Yankees were, Yankees were making sure he's heading to Costa Rica. The Yankees were pulling the strings to make sure that he goes to Costa Rica. So he ends up going to Costa Rica and he ends up siding with the Yankees and becoming El Duque. Well, the story, know? I mean, and then the story ends up being a little question, right? I mean, they, they, they're 10 hours on this raft, eight guys from Cuba, yes. they're swimming, yeah. they're sharks. Yes. And then you're like, later, it's like, did that really happen? No, they plucked this guy. He left Cuba and somebody plucked him out of the water on the way to wherever and, and dumped him. I This is just personally what I think. I think the guy got plucked out of the water to come by the atoll and it happened to be near the Bahamas. And then they took him to Bahamas and then they worked this whole thing out to get him to Costa Rica. I think uh, the Yankees had some guy, George Costanza, come up with a story about sharks and swimming and 10 yeah, hours. And, and, yeah, and, and, and opening your mouth for rainwater. And, hey, hey, hey. Truth always reminds me of the great boxing promoter, Bob Arum, who once said, Yesterday I was lying. Today I'm telling the truth. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, I'll tell you what. There's one thing that's true about boxing is that once those guys climb in that ring, that's the true moment. That's the truth. And boxing has been such a huge part of your sports writing career Tim, um, you're, you know, three decades plus of writing about sports. You spent many, many nights either in gyms or at prize fights. Uh, how did you originally get into covering boxing? Uh, well, I worked at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in, uh, in the mid-80s. And right after Evander Holyfield came out of the Olympics in 84 in the L.A. Games, um, they needed somebody to like cover his career. And um, they were going around the newsroom and saying, who knows anything about boxing or who likes boxing? And I mean, I have been following the sport since I was like 12 years old. Um, you know, I just, I still, the, the, the moment in the sport that sort of captured my imagination was when Ali uh, came to the, came to the Atlanta civic center to fight Jerry Quarry. I followed that story. I mean, I was 12 years old. I was like in the seventh or the eighth grade. I followed that story. Just, I was fascinated by this guy coming off this, you know, suspension and getting back in the ring. Yeah. That was 1970. And, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was just, it, it was just such a fascinating story that I, I fell in love with the story. I fell in love with Ali, you know, and then just watching him in the ring after that, I just sort of fell in love with the, with the sport. There was also um, something about writing in boxing too, right? Yeah. It lent itself to it, right? Yes, the drama 
of what goes on in the ring, the passion and the heart and the determination. I mean, it just it sort of just lends itself to all of those elements that you need for a great story. Yeah, and there's characters. I mean, there's 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 these people that show up. They're like, they're just dropped out of some kind of like storyline and yeah. fed to you. I mean, think about yeah. a guy like Lou Duva, right? A guy that right. you wrote a book with, Lou Duva, Fighting Life. The guy spent seven decades in boxing as an iconic manager and trainer. You couldn't create Lou Duva. You if if you went to Central Casting and said, "Give me like the the old grizzled veteran boxing guy." you know, with the twisted nose and, you know, really, basically, you would have the Burgess Meredith from, from Rocky. He'll kill you dead, Rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's basically, and people look at that and they think that's the caricature, but it's not. That's that right. what trainers are. I mean, that's what old school boxing trainers were. We're that guy. I well, mean, Duva, Duva signed a lot of those guys from that great 84 Olympic team. Uh, Whitaker, Breland, Meldrick Taylor, Tyrell Biggs, and Hollifield. And yeah. I mean, you know, it, he, he, I think they had, of that class, I think they ended up signing eight of the guys from that boxing team. I think there were like 12 guys on the team. I think they, they ended up signing like eight of the 12. So and, you're in Atlanta, and Hollifield is the guy. He's one of the guys signed. So... So you became like a Hollifield writer, right? I became the, the, the Holyfield writer, by extension, the boxing writer. You know, so, you know, at some point then I'm covering all of boxing by virtue of Holyfield. So it, it's, and it sort of happened the same way when I went to Cincinnati. I'm covering all of boxing by virtue of Aaron Pryor. But that's how I, that's, that was the start of my uh, boxing writing career and still to this day one of the greatest boxing matches i've ever witnessed live was evander holyfield and dwight muhammad cowie in the undisputed cruiserweight championship fight at the uh, at the old omni arena in atlanta all right well tell us about it it was basically a war of attrition it was a brutal back and forth. It was one of the last 15-round fights. They, they, they eliminated 15-round fights like the next year after that. It was, I've never seen two men give or take as much punishment as I saw that afternoon. And it was just, it, it was almost like Thrilla in Manila type level of drama. Hmm. It's like you didn't know who was getting the best of, of whoever. And I, and uh, Holyfield ended up winning a majority decision. That's how close the fight was. And after the fight, he had to go to the hospital because his kidneys were on the verge of shutting down. Damn. He had lost so much body fluid oh. from, from sweating and getting hit in, the, hit, hit in the kidney so much that he ended up in the hospital and they had to replenish his fluids and keep his kidneys from shutting down. Oh, my. I mean, he could have died. He could have died. Unfortunately, that has happened, obviously, over the years yeah, in boxing. Yeah, that could have happened that very day. And that's when I knew that, you know, that it takes a very special kind of athlete to do this. First of all, you and, it, and it's counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense at all because most, most athletes in a sport, they get themselves in peak physical condition to perform at their very best 
to carry out whatever athletic you know responsibilities they have on the field. But none of them go into the contest knowing that they're not going to come out of the contest the same way that they went in. Hmm. And none of them go in with the, in the back, at least in the back of their mind, that there's a possibility they could die. Maybe race car drivers, mm-hmm. you know, think that there's a possibility that, you know, I could get in a crash and die. But boxers, they, that's at the forefront of every boxer knows that they're not going to come out the same way that they got, that they went in. Yeah. Unfortunately, look how uh, they, a lot of them end up, right? And a lot of them end up and they take it. That's why I, from a business standpoint, you want these guys to make as much money as they possibly can and then walk away get out. You know, before it's too late. Just get in, make your money, and get out. Well, you saw Holofield that day in that unbelievable fight. And then he, after being cruiserweight champ, he moves up to become the heavyweight champ when he beat yep. Buster D- Douglas in 1990. And... Holyfield's like what the only four-time heavyweight world yeah. champ. Yeah, I mean we're talking about a special breed of fighter. What what do you remember about Holyfield covering him? What sticks in your craw about him as a person and him as a fighter? He he was flawed on on some level. You know he was a flawed guy. I mean he had like fifteen million kids, uh, and I remember Lou Duva once said that. Uh, you know, and, and he was supposed to be like, you know, have all these Christian values and everything. And Lou Duva once said that, uh, you know, there was only one command that he couldn't keep uh, of the Ten Commandments, and that was thou shalt not commit adultery. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but he was probably one of the single most disciplined athletes that I have ever encountered in all of my years of covering sport. Floyd Mayweather is probably up there with Evander Holyfield in terms of being disciplined. And, and I remember being at a press conference and Evander Holyfield, there was this humongous chocolate chip cookie and Evander Holyfield was a heavyweight. And I pointed to the cookie and I said, man, you can eat that. I said, you're not like these smaller guys that, you know, could, can't eat the, you know, these cookies. Hold on, hold on a second. Only a sports writer would notice the cookie. Of course. <laughs> it was a great cookie. I don't want to sound like your former president where he talked about a piece of chocolate cake, but this was an impressive <laughs> chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> I can picture yeah, it this, right now. This, co- this cookie must have been about six inches in diameter, and it was loaded with, like, Damn. Tremendous chocolate chips. It was like the, the most impressive chocolate chip cookie I've ever seen. Sounds like a sewer plate you could eat. Yes. It was like a manhole cover. So that cookie's sitting there in front of Holofield. What happened? Yeah. And I, and I said to him, I said, you know, unlike these smaller guys who got to make weight, you're heavyweight. You could eat that cookie. And he looks at me and he goes, you know why I'm not eating that cookie? And I said, no. Why? He said, that's a two-mile cookie. <laughs> a two-mile cookie? What are you talking about? He said, if I ate that cookie, I would have to run two miles to burn that cookie off. And he said, it's not worth it for me to eat that cookie and have to run an extra two miles to burn it off. Wow. That's, that's discipline. He was one of the most dedicated guys that I just dedicated to his body in like keeping his body in like great shape. And he never, ever like got you and I. out of yeah, shape. Yeah, yeah. yeah, sort of yeah. like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, well, did you eat that cookie, by the way? <laughs> Two of those cookies. Hell yeah. 
And I did run four miles afterwards. Hell so. yeah, I don't even like to drive four miles. I ain't running four miles. Give me that cookie. <laughs> but that was, I mean, that was the thing that sort of struck me, that this guy was completely disciplined in his athletic life, but how you know, that, on some levels outside of that, not so disciplined. How did how did that discipline pay off in the type of fighter Hollowfield was once he got into the ring? Well, I, I think it just sort of fed into his confidence and his warrior mentality that he knew that he was, you know, in great shape. And he knew his he knew that uh, he didn't have very many physical limitations when he got into the ring. And so he was willing to push beyond whatever it was that was in front of him, whether that was pain, whether it was exhaustion, whatever it was, he was always willing to push beyond that limit. And, you know, he was always the smaller heavyweight when he got into the ring. I mean, everybody was always much bigger than him. And I think that, you know, his discipline sort of fueled that confidence that I'm going to go in, I'm going to be the David, they're going to be the Goliath, and I'm going to go in and I'm going to beat these bigger guys, you know, that I just have the confidence in my own abilities, I have the confidence in my own training, I have the confidence in my own discipline that I'm going to be able to do that. And I think that fueled him to, to you know, go to the mat with all of these big guys. He fought everybody. Do you have a favorite Holofield fight that you covered? Besides the one you mentioned when he was a cruiserweight? Uh, I'm talking about the heavyweight fights. The heavyweight fights, probably the uh, the first Tyson fight. The, the bite fight was the result of the, <laughs> the first one. Because no one thought that he would be able to beat Mike Tyson. But Holyfield had told me long before he fought Tyson that he had he had a he had a mental edge against Tyson and it and it and it happened that they were in the tra- they were in the same olympic class and they were in the same olympic training facility and i think it was in colorado springs mm-hmm. and tyson was a bully and holyfield tells a story about how he walks into a ring uh, or walks into the rec room and tyson is bullying some other boxers in the rec room to just like, you know, take over the games and do all this stuff. And Evander Holyfield stood up to Mike Tyson and Mike Tyson backed down. Hmm. And he said, I knew at that point, if we ever fought, I was going to beat him Hmm. because he said he was a bully. And I know if I press the situation, he's going to back down. He proved it right. Yeah. And he said that that was the knowledge that he had and that was a knowledge that a lot of people didn't have, you know, when they made him like this incredible, incredibly long odds that he couldn't beat, you know, this fierce, you know, Mike Tyson. He knew that he could. And, you know, he ran in, he went in the ring and he beat the guy. He bullied the bully. When you think about Tyson, what comes to mind in your years of covering him? Really just a vulnerable kid. And I think I, I still think that there's just some vulnerability still there. And I think that obviously, and and I, you know, I'm not going to play amateur psychiatrist and put this guy on a couch or anything like that, but his whole persona was put forth to, to try to hide his, his weaknesses and his fears. So the whole thing with wearing the black trunks, no robe, the towel, intimidation, the whole thing, you know, was all about, I'm going to I'm going to show you that I'm better than you. You're going to be scared of me so that I whatever fear I have inside doesn't come out. 
you know, he, he, he used, he used his own fear as a weapon, you know, to try to make other people afraid of him to build himself up. And I still remember there was a, there was an incident between me and him. I, I was like the only American reporter that had gone over to England to cover his fight against, uh, against this, this British guy, Julius Francis. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't going to talk to any reporters or anything, but because I came over from America and he knew me, he agreed to do an interview with me. And, and I, and I never will forget it. It was in the, it was in a ballroom in the Grosvenor hotel in, in London. We had, I mean, we had a long conversation. It was like a 45 minute chat. We had a long conversation. And at the end of the conversation, as a reporter, you know, you just try to get out of a conversation on an upbeat note. So I asked him, I said, you know, have you ever, um, you know, what did you do in London that was fun? Did you have any fun while you were here? Mm-hmm. Did you see any sights? And he said, yeah, I saw Big Ben. And he said, you know, I, I went to Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. And, you know, I, and I said, I said to him, I said, well, you know, it's a famous museum. Do they have any figures of you in there? And he said, nah. And he said, he said, no, they don't. But if they did, it would probably be in the Chamber of Horrors. Everybody in the room laughed, including Tyson. And I laughed and I was like, well, thanks, Mike, for the time. And I'm getting ready to walk away and he grabs me by the arm. And, and I still, I mean, I can still see it to this day. He grabs me by the arm and he's drinking a bottle of water. And he sets the water down. He grabs me by the arm. And he, said, he says, I, I want to tell you something. And I was like, okay, Mike. He says, uh, he, he said, I want to tell you how people treat me. And he said, uh, he said I was going through the, uh, the, the museum in Hollywood, on Hollywood and Vine. He said, then I was in there with my wife. Mm-hmm. And he said, I was going through a museum. And then he said, um, they, they took me to the Chamber of Horrors. And he said, and they had me in the Chamber of Horrors with all these terrible people, Hannibal Lecter, the creature from the Black Lagoon. And I'm standing there. And he says, look how people humiliate me. He said, people always want to cause me pain. And he starts to choke up like he's about to cry. Mm. And so I'm like, okay, I'm feeling a little sympathy. 20 seconds later, he's going, you know, people are always, and he starts to get angry. He's like, people are always trying to make me feel pain. He said, that's why I only want to make people feel pain. I want to hurt people, make people feel pain. He said, he said, I bet you're one of those people who want to cause me pain. And I'm like, Mike, no, I'm not, I'm not one of those people. He said, I bet you are. He said, he said, but he said, I want you to feel the same pain that I do. He said, and, and, I, and I hope you feel all the pain that I have inside of me. He said, I hope terrible things happen to you. I hope your Damn. kids get sick and I hope they die. Damn. And I'm like, <laughs> like, where did this come from? And then, and, then, and then the PR guy goes, okay, you know, interview is over. And I'm like, the interview was over when I tried to walk out and he grabbed right. me and pulled me back. But he went from like, he went on like an emotional roller coaster. He went from like nearly on the verge of tears to calming down, to building this rage and this anger, to lashing out at me. It was the most incredible thing that I've ever experienced in an interview in terms of just the roller coaster of emotions in about 90 seconds. Wow. And he still remembered that. And I remember when he was doing his Broadway, one-man Broadway play with, like, I think Spike Lee produced it. They were at the Nederlander Theater in, in New York, and I went to the press conference. And I saw Mike and I, you know, I, and, and he, you know, and I've interviewed Mike and, you know, I, I knew him and, you know, we, 
we knew each other and I wouldn't say we were close, but he, but he, he, again, he grabbed me like after the interview, he grabbed me and he pulled me aside and he said, you know what, Tim? He said, uh, he said, he said something that's always bothered me. He said, uh, hmm. what I did to you in England that time really? in London. He's like, you remember it? I said, yeah, Mike, I remember it. He said, he said, I, I got to ask you to forgive me hmm. for what I did. And I said, I said, Mike, I forgot about it as soon as it happened. He said, no, he said, you shouldn't have forgot about it. He said, it, it was a horrible thing that I said. He said, I, he said, I still remember what I said. He said, it was a horrible thing that I said. He said, I wish I had never said it. He said, mm. can you find it in your heart to forgive me for that? And I said, I said, yeah, Mike, I forgive you. I, I forgive you for it. He said, thank you. I appreciate you forgiving me for that. So there's like this, as he got older and, and where he is now, I mean, he's very self-aware now, mm. but he's still like, he's still, you know, like, I don't want to say crazy because that's, again, that's a class, that's a clinical diagnosis, but there's still something that's not, you know, right with him. And he has been, you know, diagnosed with bipolar and all these other stuff. But the self-awareness that he has now that, you know, he, he would come up to me after all these years and just like apologize, that struck me because I had forgotten all about it, but apparently it still bothered him. Wow. You know, so the next opportunity he's had to say it, he said it. And, and it takes, to me, it takes a special person to come back and apologize for something that bothers them, whether it bothers you or not, you know, but, but at least he, he was willing to make amends and everything. Did you, as an African-American yourself, did you see something in him and, and really other fighters too, from a different perspective than a white writer like myself? I think, I think so. You know, I, I had more, I had more sympathy and empathy for them for, for, for coming out of where they came from and carrying that kind of, of baggage. And then knowing that it didn't matter what level they attained, they were still going to be, uh, they could still walk into a store and be followed by store security because they were black or they, or there, there would be people that would cross the street at night, uh, to avoid crossing with them because they were black because they were perceived as a threat. So I think I had more of an empathy for them, even though they had attained a level of financial security and success that, you know, the average American can't even dream of. Uh, but they were still going to be, regardless of where they went in this country, they were still going to be a, a black man in America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all the baggage that comes with that. So I could connect with them on that level. And, you know, even though you don't have conversations with that, even though you don't necessarily articulate that, there is a level of understanding that a white reporter wouldn't have right. with a black athlete. But I will say this, it doesn't give you any more of an in with them than it does any other reporter. But if there is an understanding. But I think as a black reporter, as an African-American sports reporter, I think that athletes want you to give them the benefit of the doubt. But as a journalist, you have to be true to the craft. You have to be true to objectivity. Mm-hmm. You can't give them the benefit of the doubt when they are in the wrong or when they do something that's not right. You can't do that. Uh, and sometimes on that level, they feel like there's a betrayal on your part for not you know, giving them a slide or whatever. Hmm. And, you know, that's the duality of being a black sports reporter or a black sports writer. 
is that you still have to do your job and you still have to do it, you know, at, at the best and highest standards, even when you're covering, you have to cover all athletes the same, you know, you can't make that distinction, but you do have an empathetic feeling for black athletes because you know what they deal with as African-American men and you know where they came from. For the most part, you know where they came from. And I think that perspective is so important and not just boxing, but all sports coverage. All sports. All sports. I remember once when I was covering the Bengals, I was coming back from uh, training camp and Reggie, uh, Reggie Williams sped and overtook took me on the highway. I think it was like 70, Highway 71 or whatever. I can't mm-hmm. remember what highway was. He sped and overtook me and like, you know, waved me off the side of the road, you know, and I parked at some restaurant or something. And he, and he came up to me and he said, you know, you're the first African-American reporter that I've ever dealt with, hmm. you know, and he didn't ask for any special favor. You know, he didn't, he didn't ask for any special favorite, but he said, I just want to acknowledge that I'm so happy that you're in this role, that you're doing this because I've never encountered an African-American reporter on a daily basis at any of the stops along the way. That's really interesting that he, he wanted to voice that to you. Yeah, but he was also going to later run for city council. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Reggie was the ultimate politician. Right. You know, I'm not saying he was working some angle, but he probably was. But um, no, not but, it, but it was interesting yeah. that he expressed yeah. that, and, and no, other, no other athlete at that point had ever expressed that to me. And he, and, he, and he said, he said, you know, I hope you, whatever happens in your career, I hope you stick with it because it's very important that we, as athletes, see – people that look like us in the press. And he's right. And, and he's right. Well, I think about the conversations like that with Reggie, the conversation you had with Mike Tyson, and you think about the years that you spent writing about sports and the opportunities you had to have those type of conversations. Um, and I think it does give you an insight into something that goes way beyond, you know, Twitter and social media and you know, what we see on TikTok, it's it's sometimes the moments that aren't necessarily part of the story uh, that give us a greater understanding about where these guys, where these athletes, where these coaches were coming from. And I yeah. think that gets back to the type of access that we were able to get back in those days. It's certainly not like the day when you got to spend three hours with the most famous athlete of the last what, 60, 70, 50, 60 years? Yeah. Muhammad Ali. That type yeah. of access, right? It's unbelievable. And and access that he granted and that he, you know, that he invited. Greg Noble, the, the sports editor at the Cincinnati Inquirer, they were having a card signing. And it was still one of the most eclectic card signings I've ever been to because it was Billy Martin, uh, Johnny Bench, and uh, I think that Oscar Robertson was there, but it was Muhammad Ali. It was a huge card signing at Riverfront Coliseum. Those are some big names. And so, and so Greg says, go down and see if you can talk to Ali, you know, because, uh, you know, Ali was, it was the onset of like Parkinson's for Ali. Mm-hmm. And so I went down and, you know, I, I didn't pay because, you know, I, I was a reporter, local reporter. And so I went down and I, and I, you know, sidled up to Ali while he was signing some autographs. And I said, you know, I'd like to interview you and talk to you. 
And he says, well, you know, I'm working right now, but if you come by my hotel room tomorrow morning at seven o'clock, I'll give you all the time you need. And I'm thinking, this guy's setting me up, man. <laughs> I'm going to go knock on this guy's hotel room. And right. <laughs> somebody, right. you know, some drunk's going to open the door and like punch me in the face. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so I go to the hotel and it's like some airport hotel near the Cincinnati airport. It was in Kentucky. And so I go and I knock on the door and like Ali comes to the door and he is larger than life. Basically, I'm I'm about the same height. I mean, he's like 6'2". I'm 6'1". So, but I felt like I was looking up at this monumental figure, mm. you know, when he came to the door. And he, 7 o'clock in the morning, he's fully dressed. Mm. I mean, he's got on like, you know, nice shirt, slacks and everything, you know, dress shoes. And he says, come in. And it's like a suite. So we're in the in a certain, you know, in, in one part of Sweden, he's like, my kids are sleeping in the other room, so we have to be a little bit quiet. And I was like, okay. <laughs> was Sam Weiss watching the kids? So for the next three hours, I talked to Ali about everything. I mean, you name it, we talked about it. Fighting Frazier at Madison Square Garden. We talked about, you know, being suspended for the three years being a conscientious objector. And I, st- I still can't find this thing. He tried to convert me to, uh, to, to Islam. He signed like a little Islamic track for me, gave it to me and did all of his magic tricks. You know, the cricket behind the ear, the coin from behind the ear, he even levitated. And to this day, I don't know how he did it, but he said, take this <laughs> piece of paper and slide it under my feet. He said, I'm going to get, I'm going to be off the ground. And I literally slid a piece of paper under his feet. He was not touching the ground. <laughs> he was not touching the ground. Todd, when I tell you the guy wasn't touching the ground, I slid the piece of paper under his feet. And it wasn't a heel to toe thing. It was like literally, he's like, slide. He's like, no, because you're not going to believe it. He's like, slide it from side to side. Come on. <laughs> it, was, it was the weirdest thing. So, you know, like midway during the, through the interview, this was the wackiest part. Midway through the interview, I'm talking to Ali. And he falls asleep. Mm. I mean, just like falls asleep, just like starts like nods out. And he's sitting there. He's like nodding. And I'm going like, OK, what do I do? Do I get up and leave? Mm-hmm. All right. Am I a creep? I mean, am I going to do the creepy thing and like sit here and watch him sleep? Do I just sit here silently and look at my notes or whatever? So what happened? I did the creepy thing. I sat there and watched Ali sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, I can't leave. Uh, you know, I can, I can try to wake him up and tell him, you know. I, but he woke up. When he woke up, he was refreshed. He was great. You know, he he, he at that point, his vo- his voice was softer. But, he, but it, you know, he, he wasn't like showing any signs of other than nodding out. He wasn't showing any signs of like, you know, the Parkinson's having a major effect on him or anything Mm -hmm. you know he did his ollie shuffle he told me that he would beat ollie i mean he told me that he would beat mike tyson and uh you know and it wouldn't take him as long as it would take him to beat uh sonny liston Mm -hmm. i was like wow really he said yeah he said he's very fast he's strong he said but i'm faster and i'm stronger Mm -hmm. and i'm like okay whatever you say mr ollie hey man he levitates i'm not betting against the greatest yeah i'm not betting against the guy who can, <laughs> who can get up off the ground well tim those are the kind of moments that i'm sure you treasure from your career oh, as yeah. a sports writer and i know that readers and sports fans were lucky 
to have reporters such as yourself who got that type of access and were able to tell the type of stories behind the scenes. And uh, I really enjoyed, you know, this time catching up with you and and uh, very, feel very fortunate about the stories you were able to share with us. And I want to thank you very much. No, thank you for having me, Todd. And I think, I think what you're doing is very good and uh, just trying to make sure that you know that this legacy lives lives on and the and the people that you're talking to you know because i think we're you know in, in terms of sports journalism we're heading in a in a, in a direction that uh not going to be anything like when we came along so well, i'm glad you're i'm glad you're storing these well thank you i'm going to send you some chocolate chip cookies just for saying that i need a <laughs> i need a four mile cookie <laughs> all right tim you take care okay todd thank you Thanks for listening to PressBox Access. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Huffman, and our audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.